Hello and welcome to the Emperor's New Podcast, where we normally and I, I, uh, we normally discuss uh, media related to the Emperor's New Groove. But today, for April Fool's Day, we're discussing something very, very, very tangentially related to the Emperor's New Groove. <laughs> and I should explain that before we get into it. So, on the DVD menu of the Emperor's New Groove, there's a little Easter egg to promote uh, of not the Emperor's New Groove, but Who Framed Roger Rabbit. It came out uh, the 15th anniversary, a couple of years after The Emperor's New Groove came out. Uh, they released a special edition of Roger Rabbit. And if you watch that DVD menu long enough, Cusco from The Emperor's New Groove shows up. Um, that's basically the main connection. Um, without all, walk cycles past. With, without all aside, I'd like to introduce our guests, Tony Goldmark. <laughs> Remember me, Micah? When I killed Cusco with the poison, the poison for Cusco, the poison chosen specifically to kill Cusco, Cusco's poison, I talked just like this! Kyle Carosa? All the times you yanked my ears. (laughs) And please welcome our very special guest. You may know him as the author of Who Censored Roger Rabbit, the author of Who Plugged Roger Rabbit, the author of Who Whacked Roger Rabbit, and probably one of the world's biggest fans of the movie who framed Roger Rabbit. Please welcome Gary K. Wolf. Woo! I, uh, I, I don't. I don't know what I can do after that kind of an introduction and after those kind of voices, I, except to say, "Here I am, the April Fool." I guess I don't. I mean, I don't, I mean <laughs> we wouldn't be talking about this movie technically if you if you if it weren't for you. So. Well, you know that is true. Those voices would not exist, and uh, uh, so I t- I'll take credit for that. Yeah. So today, if you haven't figured it out yet, from the theme song that I'll edit in later and all the other stuff, we're talking about Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the beloved animation hybrid that was basically the movie that became the standard for animation hybrids. <laughs> oh yeah, the the new standard. Yeah. It did. It didn't invent it, but it no. definitely revolutionized it. It took it and made uh, did it to its Pretty much its fullest potential, basically, at the time. Yeah, animated animated live action movies have been going on for a long, long time. Yeah, back in the for back as movies, as long as animation, the, yeah. yeah. Back in the thirties, uh, out of the inkwell, yeah. uh, did them, and Walt Disney even did an Alice in Wonderland live action. Alice comedies, yeah. Alice comedies, yeah. yeah. Black yeah. and white, um, and and there there have been tons. Uh, Jerry the Mouse dancing with uh, Gene Kelly, uh, yeah. Uh, Kelly. Away, yeah. The, the penguins dancing with uh, Mary Poppins, and uh, later show up in this movie. You know, and then the penguins came back and made a cameo in the in the Ink and Paint Club. Right. Oh. Well, the, the, some of the the very few anachronistic characters to show up, who <laughs> you know, we weren't era appropriate to 1947. Yeah. Yeah. They've always existed, and they just you know, yeah. Mary Poppins Mary Poppins was their big break. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's, a, yeah, that's an interesting point because um, uh, Bob Zemeckis and Steve Spielberg were very precise about keeping everything. Uh, Time correct. In other yeah. words, in, in the movie was set in 1947, and nothing, everything, after, all the cartoon stuff looks like yeah, it's from nothing after that. Years. Nothing after that w- was allowed in the movie. But I hadn't thought that the penguins uh, were post 19 uh, 1947 until you mentioned that. The, yeah. the only characters, There's, the only characters that I know, Steve Spielberg. It's a gate. It's a great gag. So put it in. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> gag. But Steve, Steve Spielberg went around and asked all the key players 
what their favorite characters were because he wanted to make sure and go out and get everybody's favorite character from the movie. And uh, Bob Hoskins was Heckle and Jekyll, which were okay because they were pre-1947. Yeah, but I I don't think Disney actually was able to get the rights to them because they were Terry Tunes. I think they were there. Yeah. Oh, maybe they are. Man. I think I oh, saw right. them at the end. And, but, okay. And, and, and Bob Zemeckis likes to Popeye or Superman. No, they couldn't. Right. Well, I'll, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened with that. Because, but uh, Bob Zemeckis' favorite characters were the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, mm. and th- they were like 1948. So mm. uh, right off the bat, they had to decide: Well, are we going to break the rule that we just made, or uh, just to make Bob Zemeckis happy? And the answer was yes, of course we are. So, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a few exceptions, like like Tinkerbell shows up at the very yeah, end because Disney, <laughs> and that they, well, well, and of course Peter yeah, Pan yeah. wasn't until fifty three, yeah. but they threw that at the end to make Michael Eisner happy because he hated the idea of a Disney movie ending with Porky Pig. Yeah, <laughs> so uh-huh. it's like. So it's like, all right, we'll throw Tinkerbell in there too. Why not? Mm-hmm. You know, if you really think about it, like you know, I saw people like you know, say Mark Evan Jackson on stage for years long before they became like television staples. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I, I, if you if you can think about the uh, the iconography of of tunes, uh, yeah. perhaps Tinkerbell was toiling in obscurity as early That's, as nineteen thirty five before she became discovered. You know, yeah. who knows. Um, but and, the, the yeah, I mean, all these cartoons get discovered, and um, we might talk about that a little bit more later in regards to <laughs> the, like Popeye, the Popeye thing is kind of interesting because um, Steve Spielberg, of course, went out and got the characters. But to show you right. what different Steve Spielberg makes in Hollywood, uh, we started making, trying to make this movie in 1980. And in 1982 oh. or three, yeah. uh, Roy Disney, who was in charge of it at the time with the Warner Brothers, so they were making this live action animated movie and we would like to uh, have Bugs Bunny for a cameo. And he will just come out. He will say, what's up, Doc? A bite of carrot. And he's off. Can, what do you think? Can we do that? Would you, would you, would you allow let us do that? And Warner Brothers looked at, at Roy Disney and said, get lost. You know, get lost. There's no way that. And they threw him out the window. Yeah, you know, Walt Disney movie. So five years later in 1986, when Steve Spielberg walked in and made the exact same request, can we have Bugs Bunny for a cameo in this live action movie? Warner Bros. looks at Steve Spielberg and says, well, of course you can. But yeah, absolutely. Take him, take him. And what about, what about Porky Pig? And what about the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote? And, and what about Yosemite Sam? Take them all, take them all. Um, <laughs> so Stephen wanted to have, he wanted to have all, every cartoon character ever made in this movie. Uh, and he went to the Fleischers. Uh, who owned who owned Popeye, and uh, the Warner people wanted almost nothing for the use of the Warner characters. I mean, it, it was ridiculous. The only the only thing that they that they re- requested and got was Bugs Bunny had an agent, and Bugs had to have a contract. And in, in, in the, the that he would have an agent <laughs> in the contract, it specifies that Bugs is a co-equal superstar with Mickey Mouse, and so you cannot have Mickey Mouse in a scene without bugs. They have to be in the same scene together. You cannot have, you cannot have 
Mickey alone, and they have to have the same number of words of dialogue, and you can watch the movie and time it and count the words. Like, that's one of the scenes people talk about that makes, like, the entire premise of the movie so amazing, the scene where Mickey and Bugs Bunny are on screen. Absolutely. I hear that all the time, and and Daffy and Donald. Uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah. That'll never happen again. (laughs) Never say never. Unless, of course, Disney eventually buys out Warner Brothers, which will happen in, like, five years tops. Yeah, which is a thing we need to stop saying out loud because it's gonna yeah we out. really do we really <laughs> keep do. that out of the ether we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna say if Roger Rabbit came so out now and D- Disney instead of relying on Spielberg Disney would have just bought everything <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> well, well let me let me tell you the Popeye story so yeah, uh, sure. he went to Fleischer's and he said hey you know we're doing this live action animated movie uh, and we want to use the Popeye characters you know, you know, all your Fleischer characters. And Fleischer quoted him a price that was outrageous. I mean, it was more than Warner's asked for for all of their characters times 10. And um, so Steven said, no, it's not worth it. And after after the movie came out, I, I talked to some of the Fleischer executives, and they said that was the worst decision that company had ever made. <laughs> uh, because they looked at what happened to Droopy, who was, you know, a nothing character. And all of a sudden, after the movie came out, he had his own TV series. Uh, it went up in all the shorts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, well, and going back, character. Yeah. and going back to what you said about using the principal's favorite characters, wasn't Droopy Richard Williams' yes, favorite character? Yes. And in fact, it was Richard Williams' favorite character, and he did the voice. <laughs> right, right. He did the voice. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I'll, <laughs> well, it's Micah's show, but um, I, I'm I'm just curious. A uh, question for Gary: How involved? Were you in the development and production of this movie? Did you um, were you did you have script approval? Did you even see the scripts or? It, yeah, they bought the book from me in 1984. It actually even came out as a book, and um, they uh, it, 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 my involvement with it kind of waxed and waned depending on who was in charge. Mm. Um, from 1980 to 1985, they really didn't have the horsepower to make this movie. They really didn't. I, I didn't think, I didn't think the book was filmable first of all. And, and I didn't think that Disney had the horsepower to do it right. For the first five years, uh, they proved me right. They they eventually came to me in 82 or three where Disney came to me and said, look, you know, this whole live action animation thing isn't working. Uh, what would you say if instead of animated characters, we had them be, costume characters like they are at Disneyland. <laughs> I mean, oh, Jesus, I'm going to have, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to have, Ed 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 and Rabbit too. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have Haley Mills as Jessica, I'm going to have Pete <laughs> Jones as the Rabbit, and Kurt Russell as Baby Herman, and Freddie Murray <laughs> as Eddie Valiant. I'm going to have the whole Disney stable here. Um, See, that's the movie that the Superman 4 crew thought was being made. Yeah. <laughs> they saw Charles Fleischer <laughs> in the rabbit suit. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so after Steve Spielberg came out, Steve Spielberg had, had read the book when it came out in 1980 and always thought it would be a great movie. Bob Zemeckis had read the book and had been offered the directing job back in 1981, but he didn't really believe that Disney had the clout to pull it off. And then when Steve got involved in 85, uh, Bob Z uh, came back in and said, yeah, I'll do it after all. And uh, those guys had, had read the book. Uh, they, they, they appreciated my creativity and my talents. I, 
you know, I'm not a screenwriter, and um, but they kind of liked having me around as a mascot more than anything else. And hmm. you know, there were there were times when I'd be sitting in a sitting in a room with 35 of the most creative people that I have ever met in my life, and they're all throwing out ideas on how to make my story and my book funnier. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, where were you guys when I was sitting at my kitchen table at four <laughs> in the morning every day? writing the book you know if you guys had been there then i'd have had a pulitzer prize um they, you know you hear a lot of writers uh who were ill-treated by the people who made their movie yeah. i was i was not one of them disney was really really good to me they they treated me well um the the majority not the majority but a large percentage of the movie was filmed in england um yeah because Steve Spielberg likes the food there, you know, go figure. Um, <laughs> and uh, they flew me over to England, put me up to a first-class hotel, gave me a car and driver. Uh, oh. I, yeah, I mean, it was, it was awesome. The first day I had my car, it was a Rolls-Royce limo. And I Damn. said to the guy, so what, you know, what, what is your function? In See, the- I wonder how this became the most expensive movie ever made up to that point. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, you know, I said to the guy, you know what, what is your, what is your function with regard to me? He said, well, I take you wherever you want to go. I said, well, if I want to go get a pizza, you take me to go get a pizza? He says, yeah, take you to get a pizza. I says, well, I'll tell you what, let's go to the carriage entrance at Harrods. And so we went to the carriage entrance at Harrods. And I got out. I didn't. I, I didn't have any money, so there's nothing I could buy. But I told my wife. I said, "You know, I just wish that everybody back at Earlville, Illinois, where I grew up, <laughs> could be standing here on the sidewalk and see me get out of a Rolls Royce limo at the carriage entrance of Harris." Um, but they let me. Uh, they let me be as involved or as uninvolved as I wanted to be. I. There were certain things. There were certain things that I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed hanging around with the animators. I love them. They were they were hilariously funny and so creative, and uh, a great many of them are still my friends today. Um, and I love them. I, I, Dick Williams had his animation studio in London, and I would spend a lot of time there. Um, then they they did a lot of work in uh, in California. They did a lot of work uh, in uh, in Florida. And I spent a lot of time with the animators because I really, really liked them. And, and to me, I was, it was like whenever I came in, it was like Moses coming down from the mountain, Aww. you know, with two stone tablets on which were writ large Roger and Rabbit, you know. I mean, they really. <laughs> Thou all, shalt not yank my ears. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, but and the, the, the things I didn't like being involved with uh, was the actual movie making process. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a writer, and it, it's just it's just boring. Um, I, I'm not starstruck. Although, if I was going to be struck by stars, uh, Bob Hoskins was definitely the star I would love to be struck by because he was just a prince among men, uh, just a just a great guy, and I miss him terribly. And, and people people always ask me, um, "Were you disappointed by anything about the movie?" And yes, there was one thing great disappointment to me. Uh, the one thing that I was disappointed by was that Bob Hoskins, who I thought did the most incredible job of acting that I had ever seen anyone do anywhere, did not even get nominated for an Academy Award mm, yeah. for that. Uh, and I think the reason was 
very simple. Uh, he was so good at, at what he did that he made it look too easy. People just, did, yeah. people just didn't realize that there were times when he was standing in an empty room making it all up in his head. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah I, I heard a story that uh, when Zemeckis first talked to him about the movie, uh, Zemeckis said to him, you know, there's going to be a lot of scenes in this movie where you're basically acting against nothing. And Hoskins replied, I've had to do that working with real actors sometimes. <laughs> so <laughs> it's no big deal. Yeah. You know, he was. Uh, I I I I love I love him to death. I mean, we spent a lot of time in England, and then afterwards, he filmed the Mermaids here in my hometown of Boston. And we spent a lot of time hanging around in Boston. Uh, he, he was just a great guy, and he he tells a story about how he get got involved in acting, about how he was he was a, just a working man in the uh, in the working class district of London, and he was in a pub one night, and guys were going up to the second floor. And he thought there was a hooker up there. So he, he went up to the second floor and he walked in the door and somebody gave him some pages and said, read this. And he, <laughs> and he thought maybe it was something he had to do before he went in to see the hooker. And so he read it <laughs> and they, it turned out to be an acting audition and they gave him the job. And that was his introduction <laughs> act. Well, that's the story he tells. Uh, but actually, he was a classically trained Shakespearean actor. Right. And, you know, had all the chops and um, uh, was just a just a, a incredible young, incredible man. Yeah, he really did knock that out of the park because you know when you are acting either with cartoon characters or Muppets, it is very easy to either go too little or too big, and he hit the exact right mark. Yeah, well, it, 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 you know, it all comes down to it. He was the most. One of the, the Eddie Valiant was one of the people that we knew would be most difficult to cast because that was the person who was going to have to convince the audience that the rabbit was real. If if Eddie Valiant couldn't do that, or the actor who played him couldn't do that, the whole movie was going to fail. And uh, so they we had a lot of auditions. Uh, uh, we had, everybody wanted Harrison Ford. I mean, I wanted Harrison Ford. And he would have done it, except when he found out it was probably going to take five years, he couldn't spend that well, much. I don't want to do it. I can't and, do it. And, um, and then we wanted Paul Newman. Um, he couldn't do it for the same reason. Um, we interviewed a lot of people. Um, and, and then finally, they found the guy who was the perfect Eddie Valiant. And that, of course, was Bill Murray. And, you know, they hired Bill Murray. And Bill Murray came in, and he was, he was doing Eddie Valiant. And it became obvious really early on that um, he not only could he not convince the audience that the rabbit was real, he didn't believe the rabbit was real. He was constantly like, oh, you're a talking rabbit. What are you doing? So, you know, he got bought out of his contract for $1 million. Well, that explains Space Jam. There you go. <laughs> and uh, so we continued to audition and finally found the guy who was the perfect Roger Rabbit and a bankable star to boot. And that, of course, was Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. So Eddie, and we got a black Eddie Valiant. And um, uh, all of a sudden, we're rewriting the script to make Eddie Valiant funnier than the tunes. And so, mm. of course, this isn't going to work either. So uh, Eddie, Eddie Murphy gets bought out of his contract, uh, $1 million and a Ferrari. He'll get a Ferrari, too. Uh, really? yeah, and in the meantime, we were on the other side of Hollywood. Um, um, 
uh, De Palma, Brian De Palma, is making the untouchables. And he really wants Bobby De Niro to be Al Capone, right? But Al, uh, but Bobby De Niro is doing another movie and can't. So he brings in Bob Hoskins. And Bob Hoskins is, is starring as uh, Al Capone in, in The Untouchables. Well, all of a sudden, De Palma gets a call from De Niro and says, hey, I wrapped early. I can come over. I can do your movie. So, so now Bob Hoskins has got a million dollars and no job and nothing to do. So, uh, you know, everybody said, well, let's have Hoskins come in and read for it. Let's, let's just see. I mean, you know, and I, I have seen, I had, at the time, I had seen everything that Bob Hoskins did. I thought it was fantastic. Fantastic actor. I'd seen uh, The Long Good Friday and Mona Lisa, everything. I mean, I, I thought it was fantastic. But I said, Jesus, he's Cockney. He's, he's British and, and he's a Cockney British. Huh? How is he going to do the prototypical L.A. private eye? I, I, nobody's going to believe that. Uh, but when he, when he came in and did the reading for us, not only did he speak in an absolutely authentic English accent, I mean, American accent, <laughs> Uh, but he, he made you believe the rabbit was real. Just standing there on an empty stage, he made you believe the rabbit was real. And, and by the time he finished the movie, uh, he swore to me he could see the rabbit. That he could see the rabbit. And his, 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 his oldest son was jealous because his oldest son felt that he was giving the rabbit more attention than he was giving. <laughs> well, that'd be an interesting movie to see. <laughs> yeah, there you go. RV2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fast forward to now when like half the Marvel superheroes are fake Americans. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, it, and the other half are CGI characters who aren't right. really there on set. So <laughs> that would be an interesting crossover. <laughs> who framed Roger Rabbit in the Marvel universe? Oh, yeah. I mean, technically, well, you, could, you could make the argument that, that Toontown could be its own universe in the multiverse. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. If, I don't know if Disney likes corporate synergy much. <laughs> that'll that'll be the post credit scene in Doctor Strange. Just Roger <laughs> walking through a door, and and then Spider Ham shows. I was like, ah! yeah. oh, that's our in. <laughs> yep. It can get weirder. <laughs> much weirder. Um. So this movie basically, so animation in the '80s, basically, not just at Disney, but in general, is kind of not doing so well. And this movie sort of was the was the sort of yeah. boost it needed to like have it spark the entire Renaissance, basically. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of odd because um, you know I obviously I had help doing the movie. I didn't do it myself, but I did write the book. Really? <laughs> yeah, I did write yeah. the book, and you know Steve Spielberg even gives me credit for inventing the concept and, and uh, that sort of thing. But Roger Rabbit uh, was kind of like the second, second the, say, the silver age of animation. You know, Golden Age was Warner Brothers and Tex Avery, uh, and this was like the silver age, and ushered in a whole new era of animation. Um, animation was dying. Nobody was doing animated movies. Nobody was doing shorts. Uh, and then Roger Rabbit came along and reinvented it. You know, what little without, animated stuff there was was not doing well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you know, without Roger Rabbit, there would not be Space Jam. Uh, maybe there shouldn't have been Space Jam. I don't know. There wouldn't uh, be there would have been Cool World. Yeah, yeah. And the other amazing 
All the other Spielberg cartoons would not exist in that one. Right. <laughs> it, it, it's downright amazing how quickly Who Framed Roger Rabbit had an effect on Saturday morning stuff. Like, what was Mighty Mouse The New Adventures? Like, the next year and the pup names I, I actually just think, like... I actually think Mighty Mouse was the previous year. I think that was 87, so... Was it? it yeah, I'm, I'm pretty oh, sure, um, but... <laughs> Mm. But but Roger Rabbit would have been in production by then, so right. like, like that 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 wave was was starting to crest yeah. a little bit. And then of but, course they wanted to do a, Disney wanted to do a Roger Rabbit. Clearly, it would appear that Disney wanted to do a Roger Rabbit series, but Spielberg didn't want them to, so they made bonkers. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a, like the six hundred pound gorilla going up against the. Seven hundred pounds. Feels like like in terms of Roger Rabbit, it's split in half between Disney and Spielberg trying to take a similar approach idea and turn it into yeah. Yeah, there were all kinds of there were all kinds of attempts at a compromise. Uh, At one point, uh, Disney Spielberg came to Disney and said, "Okay, I'll I'll give you my half of the rights to Roger Rabbit, but I keep Jessica." And you know, I, I, of all the characters in the movie, Jessica is the one that is is really hardest for Disney to get a handle on because they don't know how to uh, how to deal with a sexualized cartoon character. Yeah. And I think actually probably Stephen would have done a better job with it than they did. I don't know, but yeah. uh, that just never came to never came to be. Yeah. Uh, but there's there's so many. There's so many politics involved, not to mention the politics between uh, Jeff Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. Yeah. Um, when right. Jeff expected to be named president of Disney and instead he wasn't and he left in a huff and said flatly, I'll never going to do anything to make Disney another nickel. And then went to form a partnership with Stephen and said, hey, right. let's not do anything to make Disney another nickel. Well, let's make a big Roger Disney Rabbit is Disney kind of thing. It would make, yeah. Let's give Disney a big green middle finger, basically. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys ever heard of Jetter Mars? I have not. I have not, no. So there was a point in the 70s where uh, Osamu Tezuka, who created Astro Boy, wanted to make a new Astro Boy series, but just due to circumstances, like, he didn't have the rights to Astro Boy. He had the rights to all of the other characters, but not Astro Boy. So he just made a character that was almost the same thing called Jetter Mars. And he made that show in the seventies. That's what Bonkers is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah pretty <laughs> much. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's um, like, I mean, I mean, it's it's George Lucas making Star Wars because he couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, basically, yeah. <laughs> but but not as successful, of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. It's, it's kind of interesting for me because I have I have the right to do anything in print. With my characters, I can write books. I can I can do short stories. That's really neat, actually. Yeah, and you can't imagine somebody who created Mickey Mouse having that kind of a deal. Or right, you know, the closest I can come is Carl Barks, who had the right to mm. fine mm-hmm. art with Uncle Scrooge. Yeah, um, and and uh, but I have the right to do novels, so whatever. However, if I want to use my character on the cover of that novel. Uh, what those characters look like is called by Spielberg and Disney. So I have to go to them and ask them if I can use the likeness of my character on the cover of the novel. Basically, uh, right? So, fiction, but from the creator, basically. So what you're saying is Roger Rabbit is the Prophet Muhammad. 
You just can't depict him visually. <laughs> he, that's, that's good. That's, that's good. So, so Disney's gonna Disney's gonna issue a what a fatwa? Uh, yeah, a fatwa. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I, I oh, I don't even want to think about that. Uh, actually, actually, my pandemic book uh, for the past two and a half years, when I've been sequestered, uh, my pandemic book is an origins novel uh, called Jessica Rabbit: Serious Business. Mm. Serious spelled with an X, X E R I O U S. Serious business. And um, it is an origins novel uh, talking about how Jessica Krupnik, a human uh, shop girl, uh, metamorphoses into Jessica Rabbit, uh, the woman that we all know and love, and where tunes come from. Uh, how they came to be, and uh, where Roger comes from, how he met Jessica, how they fell in love, and uh, how Toontown came to be. Mm. Yeah. And it, it's it, it's brilliant. I mean, something brilliant. Um, anyway, uh, for the cover, uh, I I didn't want to I didn't want I wouldn't have used the Disney Jessica Rabbit character anyway because uh, as I say, she starts out as a human being. And um, winds up uh, as a tune. technically isn't that how all cartoons? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and anyway, I I wanted to. And then do there's something. a whole bunch of humans that sort of morph. <laughs> I wanted to do something that that uh, connotated Jessica without actually showing Jessica, and um, um, so um, I wouldn't have used I wouldn't have used the Jessica Rabbit character anyway. Because um, she uh, she isn't the the focus of the book. She Jessica Rabbit is Jessica Rabbit at the end of the book, but at the beginning of the book, she is not the the prototypical Jessica Rabbit. But I still wanted to connotate Jessica Rabbit, and I, I was looking at all kinds of different ideas and all kinds of different artists. When a fan uh, sent me a uh, a drawing. Uh, over the transom, they just sent it to me on Facebook Messenger, and uh, his, the guy's name is Andy Prisney, and he said, "Hey, I did this, and it's it's the kind of work I do, and it's Jessica Rabbit, and would you would you want to put it on your Facebook page?" And I, <laughs> and it just blew me away. I said, "I'll do more than that. I'll put it on the cover of my book." <laughs> and the the guy was was over the moon. He said. Oh my goodness! Yes, and he sent me the artwork. I said, "Well, no, no, wait, wait, wait. There's more to it than this, you know. How much are you going to charge me?" So I'm not going to charge anything. You have it for free. I said, "No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't work that way. I got to pay you for it." <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, he uh, he did the artwork, so it's it's actually fan artwork on the cover of the book, and uh, it's just blow away. If you if you follow me on Facebook. Um, Andy Prison, or you should actually follow Andy Prison. He he uh, he draws a lot of stuff, which I share on my Facebook page. He's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. The the drawing that he did of Jessica is kind of Picasso, Matisse like, uh, hmm. very uh, very stylistic. You look at it and you say, "Oh yeah, Jessica Rabbit," but it's uh, it's just different. So it's really brilliant. So, you know, whenever fans say to me, geez, how do I get my start in the art business? There you go. <laughs> you know, send, send me something good and I'll put it on the cover of my book. And there you go. You're <laughs> so, 
And of course, Roger Rabbit, uh, the legacy of Roger Rabbit, basically, it, um, it, for one thing, it has a ride at Disneyland, which they recently changed. Well, it has a, it has a whole, there's a whole tomb. Yeah, well, yeah, it has a whole land. Right, right. Land, yeah. Which is, right now, the entire land is going to, like, a refurbishment or something, I think. Yeah, it's closed off at the moment. They're going to add a new Mickey Mouse ride um, somewhere there. It's not replacing Roger. Roger's staying there. (laughs) Yeah, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, which replaced uh, the great movie ride at uh, Disney World uh, recently. It's not replacing anything at Disneyland. No, it's... Building a whole new thing, and uh, and the exterior, of course, at Disney World is the Chinese theater, and the exterior at Disneyland is going to be the El Capitoon Theater. So, oh, it's cool. repli- <laughs> replicating. <laughs> I heard that. That's really funny. Yeah, the, the El Capitoon. Uh, so it's replicating two movie theaters, which in real life are across the street from each other. But now, the, uh, but these ones will be on total opposite ends. Totally different coasts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's really funny. Yeah, uh, yeah. If uh, if you go to Disneyland and go to uh, Toontown and Disneyland, I was I was involved with the making of, of that. Ooh, and, awesome. uh, yeah, and another, uh, another hyperfixation of mine. <laughs> you know, for for a writer to be involved with something like that, and when I when I go, I I was there uh, several times while they were building it, and then when it was opened. Uh, they had a, an opening ceremony where they closed the park and only allowed in um, A-list celebrities. I mean, uh, Tom hey, Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, well, the, you know, Spielberg was there. Bob Z was there. Uh, it was it, Tom Selleck, uh, Whoopi Goldberg. I was I was sitting on a I was sitting on a roller Rabbit coaster. And, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting on a roller coaster with. With Robin Williams sitting behind me, telling me things to tell Whoopi Goldberg in the car ahead of me to crack. <laughs> oh my god! And, oh my god! You know this is too much. But if you walk through, first thing that you'll notice is uh, you won't notice it because we were very careful about it. But there are no there are no uh, straight lines, and there are no right angles. Right. Everything is a curve, or a thing. and everything. Uh, is kind of toony. If you walk into the post office, all the tunes have mailboxes. And if you twist the knobs on Goofy's mailbox, Goofy will talk to you. And if you yeah. twist the knob on um, uh, Mickey's mailbox or Roger's mailbox, they'll all talk to you. There's a, a manhole cover in, 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 in Toontown. And if you stand on the manhole cover in the right way, you can hear the weasels and the sewers underneath plotting how they're going to well, this is the original, the original land that technically is themed to a single IP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, if you go into Minnie's house, all right. If you go into Minnie's house, as you're leaving Minnie's house, there's a uh, an easy chair. And if you look on the arm of the easy chair, draped over to the magazine, uh, that's called Jessica's Secrets with Jessica, oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Jessica in a negligee uh, on the front cover. And as you're, as you're leaving, although it looks more to me like Lena Hyena, but uh, who am I <laughs> uh, As you're leaving and you look back over your shoulder, you will see that Minnie has a little little bookshelf. And on her bookshelf is who censored Roger Rabbit. <laughs> That's cool. Very cool. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. <laughs> and, of course, they made the shorts. Which, yeah, I made the shorts. Um, I love the shorts, as you yeah, may know. Shorts. Yes, I, I certainly. Well, I mean, we all know that. Actually. Yeah, we do. Uh, 
Kyle and I did an episode of my podcast, Escape from Vault Disney, where we talked about all three shorts. But but and now that, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so do you guys do you guys know about the gags in the margins in the movies and the shorts? Some of them are actually when Ron Schneider was on my podcast uh, <laughs> recently. Uh, th- this didn't make the final episode, but he told me about some of the gags we missed in the Roger Rabbit shorts. Like, for example, when Roger is spitting out the bees, there's a bee with Mickey's head. There's a bee with Tinkerbell's head. Mm-hmm. There's a bee. There's a bee with the genie's head. It's yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah, it's like the genie bee from so, that so one scene. I, yeah, 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 yeah. Be yourself. Man. I love the. I love the. I think it's in the trail mix up one. Um, the bug spray says mink off. On it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we did. We did mention that. Yeah, I do remember that. that. Yeah. Well, the, the the way it all got started, uh, the animators, the animators were doing the Betty Boop scene, uh, and when she says, "I still got it," you know, Eddie Boop Boop. Such a sweet scene. Yeah, sweet scene. And Mike still an Little known fact: in every Fleischer cartoon with Betty Boop, whenever Betty Boop says "Boop Boop Doo," uh, for six frames, the front of her dress falls down. Yeah, and mm-hmm. her breasts are exposed, and then she picks up her dress up. But every Betty Boop cartoon has that, and so the animators wanted to do an homage, and they said, "Hey, can we do it here?" And I said, uh, "Guys, I don't, I don't know. You know where?" They said, "Well, go ask Steve." I said, "You want me to go ask Steve?" He said, "Yeah, he likes you. Go ask Steve." <laughs> so I, I went and asked Spielberg, and I said, "Steve, the animator." And I explained the whole thing about Betty Boop, and I said, "The animators want to do that as an homage." And I, I, what do you think? He said, "Well, do it. Let me see it." So he, they did it, and he they they ran the film for him, and he couldn't even see it because obviously it's a gag in the margin, and it goes by so fast, human eye couldn't see it. The funnest part of animating, <laughs> yeah, and he couldn't see it. So he said, "Okay, uh, it can stay in the movie." So then the animators come to me and said. Ask him if we could do more. <laughs> oh, so I said, can they do more? And he said, uh, yeah, they can do more. But nothing nothing worse than PG-13. Nothing R-rated. And yeah. certainly nothing X-rated. Nothing worse than PG-13. So there I are... I think I know where this is going. But <laughs> there, are, well, going. <laughs> so there are many, many, many of them in the movie. And, um, you know, nobody ever caught him. And uh, Stephen was was vowed that he was not going to release this movie on uh, a cassette. He was going to re-release it in the theaters every seven years, but then he, he released E.T. That changed. He released E.T. on cassette and made a ton of money, and so Roger Rabbit came out. And all the cassettes had been made when Frank Marshall went on uh, The Late Show and told the Betty Boop story. And suddenly Disney realized, holy Jesus, we've got a topless woman in this PG-13. Oh, the rescuers had one. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> so they went through and they recalled all the cassettes and they took that scene out. Uh, it's no longer there. Yeah. But they, they missed all the rest. And of course, yeah, the, the one that became infamous was the famous Jessica Pantyless scene. Yeah, right. Where, yep. where Jessica is in the car and Benny the Cab and they're coming out of Toontown. They hit the dip. They hit the telephone pole. And if you watch that frame by frame, you see, first of all, that Eddie is a dummy, um, and uh, <laughs> clearly a dummy. And then Jessica, does, it's beautiful animation. Jessica does a like a cartwheel in the air, and her dress billows out, and her hair billows out to to uh, mirror it. And, and she's upside down, her legs open, and she has no underwear. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course... Not that she needs any. I mean, it's like looking at your Barbie doll, for God's sake. Yeah. And to show you how not non-salacious it is, 
USA Today ran it, ran that still on the front page in full color. <laughs> so you know, but uh, Disney was was very embarrassed, and uh, they said, "Oh my God, uh, we don't know how this happened. How could this have happened?" And so they said, "Well, you know, the film the film was was duped in China. It was a rogue Chinese animator." Who did it? Oh, okay. Rogue Chinese animator, and that didn't fly. And so then they said, "Well, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna hunt down uh, we're gonna hunt down the animator who did it, and we're gonna fire him, and he's never gonna he's never gonna work in the in the animation. He'll never eat lunch in this town again." Yeah, and, and but everybody knew who had done it, and he, he that animator who I shall not name on, on this show um, went on to direct a number of. Big budget movies for Disney, so he obviously got <laughs> continued to work in the animation industry. I mean, that narrows it down a little. But <laughs> you're, you're, you're not going to hear. That. I'll tell you one other one other kind of interesting. Oh, uh, I'll tell you as a as a, as a, uh, a bonus to your listeners out there. Uh, anybody uh, who goes to my website uh, sends me an email and mentions the show. I will send them a complete list of all the gags in the margins of the movie and the yeah. and the uh, cartoon. Mm. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. uh, another interesting animation story that I just myself learned just a, a couple of months ago. I'd never heard this before. I was on a panel with a bunch of the animators, um, and uh, one of them said that he was the guy who had done the Warner Brothers stuff. And uh, Warner Brothers was really adamant about wanting the 1980s characters uh, in the movie. And the Disney animators were really adamant about wanting the 1946, 47 characters. Uh, and and Warner's, was, Warner's wasn't, wasn't budging. They, they would not budge on that. So this guy who was in charge of the Warner Brothers characters did two versions. He did a 1946 version, and he did a 1980s version. He showed Warner Brothers the 1980s version, and he put the 1946 version in the movie. <laughs> and Warner Brothers did not know it until the movie came out. <laughs> and when they saw that the 1946 characters were in the movie and not the 19th, they went ballistic. But the movie was such a success, such a resounding success, uh, you know, financially and creatively, that it turned out that they were able to sell T-shirts and lunch boxes and stuff with the forty-six characters and the eighties characters both. So I but, I'm but that animator, here. I can't wait for Into the Looney Tunes verse where we get to see the beach. <laughs> <laughs> but that animator, that animator, did have to fall on his sword and was fired. And uh, yeah. yeah. And, and that's when Warner Brothers said, screw this, we'll make our own Roger Rabbit with basketball and hookers. <laughs> yeah. fact, forget the Using Rabbit. the 1980s characters, right? Right, yeah. Although, except for that one scene where they had to bring in that animator who specifically made it Bob Clampett style. Just, to, <laughs> just right. to, yeah. That I feel like we ought to talk about Christopher Lloyd's performance as Judge Doom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, I can buy it. Like, Christopher Lloyd is one of the performers that, like, yeah, I could just absolutely buy that he's a cartoon character in a rubber mask. <laughs> There's a few of them out there. Uh, Chris Lloyd, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a wonderful guy. He's a sweet guy. Um, I didn't get as close to him as I did to Bob Hoskins just because 
Uh, you know, I spent more time with Bob Hoskins, both there and in Boston, but uh, Chris Lloyd is just, but Chris Lloyd is Reverend Jim from Taxi. I mean, he's, right. uh, <laughs> he's, he's a couple of cards short of a full deck and, um, and he's, he's just hilariously funny. I, I was just talking about this with somebody else because there's, uh, it's the red shoe scene. The yeah. red scene. And uh, we traumatized all the children that their parents were probably Yeah, the most traumatizing uh, cartoon scene since Bambi's mother was shot by the hunter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I still I still hear from people who say, Oh my god, I was traumatized by the red shoe and by uh, uh, Doom spinning eyeballs. Uh, the the only thing that would have made the shoe scene more traumatizing, which, as I understand it, they almost had in the movie, but then cut, was to see the reaction of the other shoe. Yeah, like, it was, to, was, it was the original intention. We were going to use a tune puppy. Oh, oh God! Oh, no. God. Yeah. Oh, that would keep the shoe. Keep <laughs> the shoe. You know, it was a very cute. <laughs> We were going to use a tune puppy. Well, that, that, then, then everyone would have probably left the theater. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, and and then, uh, then it would turn out in the end that he was actually Cruella de Vil all along. But you know, and then, uh, you know, and then we finally decided no, that 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 just isn't going to fly. Emma Stone is Doom. <laughs> so we went with we went with a shoe. Uh, but but you got to got to realize if you if you look uh, a couple of. A couple of minutes before, uh, that red shoe did is the shoe that kicked the policeman in the crotch. Yeah, mm. I did, so I did that know. red shoe does have uh, does have form. I mean, uh, when Doom sentences him to death, it's for kicking the policeman in the crotch, and you can say, "Well, that's you know tough love." Um, of all the of all the characters in the movie, I mean, Roger's got his fan club. Jessica, of course, has has her fan club. But there is a huge fan club for the Red Shoe. Uh, there's a group called Justice for the Red Shoe. And, and they. That's, that's the sequel, The Red Shoe's Revenge. Justice for the Red Shoe. And they wrote me a couple of months after the movie came out and said, you know, is there going to be a sequel to this? And I said, well, you know, at the time, who knows and whatever. And they write me every year on the anniversary of the movie's release. The anniversary of the Red Shoe's death. And they say, you know, because I, I promised them, I said, look, if there is a sequel, I guarantee you, I can guarantee you that the Red Shoe will come back. The Red Shoe will return. There is, um, there is a, an established way to bring cartoons back even after they've been dipped. So as long as the original model sheets exist, because there's, oh. a, there's a graphic novel that someone wrote, uh, you know, an official Disney published one that uh, involved Doom coming back, and the way they brought him back was they still had the model sheets, basically. Well, I mean, I mean assuming the afterlife exists in the Toon universe, presumably now the angels want to wear the red shoe, so now... <laughs> well, <laughs> Costello reference. You, know, you, gotta realize, you gotta realize that I am the Lord High, almighty potentate of Toontown. Ah, and and I, make, I make the rules. Yeah. So... Um, damn right. If, if, damn right. If I want to bring it back, I'll bring it back. Um, <laughs> if you read my books, um, I write my books to amuse myself, and um, that's a good reason. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, and I'm just very fortunate that other people seem to seem to like them too. Uh, the other thing is, when I write my books, 
I don't consider myself to be a humorist. So if you listen, if you go on Wikipedia, you'll see that I'm I'm regarded as as the um, the, the premier American humorist right now. But I don't think my books are funny. Uh, I I write them to be serious novels. But when people read them, they think, "Geez, this is the funniest thing I've ever read." So uh, I don't know. Where, where that's coming from, but it's nothing that I'm putting in there. I don't see myself as a funny writer, but people seem to think I am. I mean, I uh, listened to old Philip Marlowe radio shows for the laugh, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were knee slappers, I tell you. So, um, you know, I, I, I write, I've written three novels, and uh, I, I kind of pay a, a little bit of attention to um, keeping things consistent. Um, it, but. As he, once again, I mean, this is Toontown you're talking about, and weird sure. fantasy things happen, and um, I, I don't really care if things are are exactly consistent, as long as everything is consistent in the book I'm writing. All right, yeah. all right. I, I, I yeah, will not. I will not have something in a book I'm writing that is inconsistent with everything else I've written in that book. Yeah, but uh, as far as as far as book one being totally consistent with book two, with book three, uh, I'm kind of loosey goosey about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, correct me if correct me if this is not accurate, but I read that you retconned one of your books as as a character's dream in a later book or the something. First one, I think you retconned the first book. I think. Well, yeah, uh, and I I won't I won't give away why I did that. Uh, because it would give away a twist in the first book, mm. um, but and that it required me to do some um, some creative uh, creative writing with with how to bring back a character that I had killed off in the first book, and um, so I brought him back. By this was in the days of Dallas when. Uh, Bobby Ewing sure. was off the show for oh, two years. Oh, you mean into that Family Guy episode? <laughs> yeah, and suddenly showed up. Suddenly showed up in Pam Shower, and I said, "Well, you know, if they can do it on that, I can do it. I can do it here." And so that is how I brought that character back. Yeah, but um, again, in in retrospect, now that many many years have gone by and nobody nobody remembers Pam Ewing or Bobby Ewing or the shower scene. Um, and, uh, you know, people read that book today, and if they get that at all, um, th- it might be just a question about, gee, that's a really strange thing to say, because nobody nobody gets it. And, um, you know, the, the, the concept of Toontown as a place where magical things can happen, um, I don't even need to do that, because the character, the character was killed off. And then in the next book, he's back again. So what? Uh, happens all the time. tunes. Happens all the time in Toontown. So, Gary, let me ask you this. Uh, so a number of sequels have been attempted. Uh, Tony uh, was on an episode of How Did This Not Get Made talking about uh, Toon Platoon in particular. You've written a number of sequels to Roger Rabbit. Have they ever approached you about uh, trying to adapt one of yours as... They bought the, second, they bought the second one uh, for the movies. Who plugged Roger Rabbit? Um, they did not buy the third one for the for the uh, movies because they had the second one and they didn't really need the third one. Um, you know, people ask me about the sequel all the time. I get that question all the time, 
And it is like the first time uh, where it was a roller coaster. All of a sudden... Roller coaster it, rabbit. Yeah, roller coaster rabbit. It was hot, it was not, it was hot, it was not. Uh, and the sequel is the same way that, you know, the, they were, they were going ahead with, uh, who discovered Roger Rabbit. And then for a while they were doing Toon Platoon. Uh, and then, um, uh, Toon Platoon was how I found out why, uh, they actually set the fifth of the Andros movie in the 50s. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and, and, and again, you know, and again, I'm not, uh, the Jessica Rabbit novel, is set in modern time, and I am not—I uh, am not at the least bit concerned about that because, uh, as I see it, these are all actors, and after they go into Toontown, they made a movie called "Who Framed Roger Rabbit," uh, <laughs> and it's a period piece. You know, yeah. I have no problem with that. But right. um, you know, the the, the movie—the the movie w- was essentially dead when when Jeff Kassenberg left and went to work with Spielberg. Spielberg uh, didn't want to make me do it. But then all of a sudden, uh, Spielberg and Kassenberg aren't so close anymore. Spielberg got a, got a bungalow on the Disney lot. Uh, Bob Zemeckis got his little animation thing going. Uh, Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy um, got a little bungalow as producers on the Disney lot, and they asked them, well, of course, now Kathleen Kennedy's in charge of Lucasfilm, so... Yeah, and they asked, they asked them, you know, what's the first movie you want to do? And they both said, we want to do the sequel to Roger Rabbit. Uh, Don Hahn uh, gave an interview not well, long ago, not too long ago, which said, well, Roger Rabbit fans are going to be very happy. And then the whole Pixar thing comes in. And uh, all of a sudden, Pixar people are really in control of, of Disney animated films. <laughs> and they... The Pixar people are kind of strange because they don't, they don't seem to, I don't know if they don't appreciate them or if they just don't want to use them, but they don't really have a feeling for the older Disney characters, including Mickey Mouse. I mean, they don't, they don't want to do any Mickey Mouse stuff. They don't want to do Roger Rabbit stuff. They don't want to do anything but new characters that they, as Pixar people, create. Um, it, it, it has always felt that way to me, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, what's going to happen? I don't know. I, I I can tell you that Roger Rabbit, at last accounting, uh, as, a, as a movie, has grossed over $1 billion. And uh, the rule of thumb is that a sequel movie will make about two-thirds of the original. That's two-thirds of a billion. That's, that's a lot of millions, you know. Uh, and, and a lot of simoleons. A lot of simoleons. And eventually money will out in Hollywood. Uh, there will come a time when Disney is not doing well, uh, when they need another hit. Uh, they'll turn around and they'll do Roger Rabbit too. It yeah. does seem like they're rebooting absolutely everything. I'm, uh, I'm sure they'll get around to Roger they Rabbit. Even gave, they even gave, they're, they're basically giving Roger Rabbit a cameo in that new Rescue Rangers. Right. They, yeah, his yeah, cameo in the trailer. I, even. I, I heard that. Uh, I saw the, uh, saw the trailer, and I saw Roger Rabbit doing his little Roger Rabbit dance. And um, so maybe that's, maybe that's their way of subtly bringing it back into the movies. I don't know. Yeah, maybe they'll see how that movie does, and they'll and and that, they'll see if that nostalgia for that particular era has come part back. Of Toons having to deal with the rise of CGI was always what I kind of wanted to see for a Roger Rabbit sequel. 
Yeah, yeah. The um, I, I it seems like they're doing for the Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie what every fan predicted they would probably do for a Roger Rabbit yeah. movie. But, you know, I uh, a, a friend of mine saw it. He had to sign a PDA, uh, so he couldn't really. He he sent me an email telling me what he saw, but then. <coughs> He had to sign a PDA, and I shouldn't have done that. He had to sign a public display of affection. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta agree to love Disney if you go to. The yeah, movie. exactly. You gotta I'll kiss Bob Chapek on the mouth. Ooh, I'll, 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 I'll wait for it to come. Out he won't say gay. NDA. <laughs> NDA. <laughs> An NDA. Yeah. Right, <laughs> NDA. Well, you, no, see, that's I love, why, I love Indiana Jones. You, you see, that's that's why that's why I love Disney so much. I, you know, PDA. I, uh, there you sure. go. Um, but he had to. He had to then tell me that uh, I had to forget what I had heard. But um, I and I will not will not break his confidence. Yeah, but yeah. I understand that it is the sequel that Roger Rabbit should have been. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. That's what that's what the the basic, not necessarily the premise, but the underlying hook of it seems to me like what the Rod Rabbit sequel should have been hooking you with. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what my money's on after hearing about this this Jessica origin story you're writing. That totally seems like something that Disney Plus would do. Like that yeah. seems like yeah. a mini series that they would be interested in producing. Well, so, uh, mark my words on this particular episode. Everybody, play it back when it gets announced. <laughs> Well, uh, all right. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna bookmark this, but uh, uh, I did take the Jessica Rabbit novel uh, from a screenplay I wrote for a live action Jessica Rabbit movie. Mm. Mm. Okay. And, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I had the screenplay, and I said, "Wow, you know, I got the screenplay. Uh, I think I'll do a novel first. So it, the screenplay for a live action Jessica Rabbit movie already exists, and uh, you know, when you read the book, and I think everybody should read the book, um, you'll see that uh, it starts out with human beings in a human world where cartoons don't exist, where toons don't exist. Like our world. <laughs> well, kind of like our world, except with the uh, evil masterminds, yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. Have you met <laughs> We're not lacking books? for those. <laughs> I don't know if you... Well, maybe not the mastermind part, but... <laughs> Just the evil part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bookmark that when you read the book, okay? Okay. Okay. Right. Um, yeah, what else? There's I mean, I got, a, I got a ton of notes on the movie itself. Oh, go ahead, but, please. But, but I feel like... I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like I'd be talking over Gary, whatever. Yeah. Um, Gary, Gary, let me ask you this. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of differences between, you know, what is in the movie and what is in your book, but you seem, you know, incredibly happy about the way the movie turned out. Sure. Can you speak to that? Sure. Uh, when I wrote the book, I wrote it to be the best book I was capable of writing. And I, I think it is. I think it's my masterpiece. I don't think I'll ever surpass Who Censored Roger Rabbit. It's just a brilliant, brilliant book. And um, uh, I didn't think it was filmable because I did certain things in the book that uh, don't lend themselves to movie making. In the, in the book, the characters are comic strip and 
uh, comic book characters, and they talk in word balloons. So right. when they when they talk, uh, they give out a balloon, and you, you don't actually talk to them. You uh, you read them, and those balloons kind of are characters of their own in the book. They they do things. Uh, you know, some of them some of them uh, like a leaden statement will will fall on your foot and can break your foot. Um, if a tune tune gun is fired, it produces a bang balloon, and you can take that bang balloon. They, they get very brittle, and they land on the, on the sidewalk. And they don't break. <laughs> uh, you can take that bang balloon and compare it with a bang balloon from another gun, and if the bang balloons match, that's, that's the gun that fired the balloon. Uh, when somebody plays the piano, the notes go trailing off uh, into the room, and people will collect those, those rolls of notes and cut them up into 8 by 10 uh, sheets, and that's where sheet music comes from. So you know, <laughs> the, the whole book is full of that kind of imagery, and I spent a lot of time thinking about the kinds of things that a cartoon, uh, that a, a, a comic book and comic strip character would do, that would be hilarious in a in a human world, and there's it's filmable. And um, um, I didn't think the book was filmable. The, the The story that I came up with was a story that. Um, will not work in a world where cartoon characters aren't real. So, the, you know, but the story I'm not as concerned with. And um, the, 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 even the cartoon, the, the word bubbles, I'm not as concerned with. They originally, they loved, everybody at Disney loved the word balloons. They all loved that concept and they wanted to use word balloons in the movie. But they realized that it was, um, it was impractical because when you did it, it became a silent movie. Uh, you know, you put a word balloon up and there you have to read it and you have to go on. So uh, they changed them into, into film actors, which, I, you know, I'm fine with that. Uh, in my second novel, uh, they are film actors, but they still talk with balloons, although they have the option of speaking verbally if they want to. And some of them do and some of them don't. Jessica speaks verbally. Uh, Roger still uses the word balloons because he's a traditionalist. Um and the the story in the book is the book story, and it's it's a, it's a great book story, but it doesn't work as a movie story. <clears throat> so when they when they converted the book to the movie, the first thing they had to do was come up with a movie story, you which was sim- yeah, which was simpler. Uh, you know, the Judge Doom character. Uh, it, it's a much simpler and straightforward character than the than the villain in my book. Um, and equally as surprising at the end, but uh, simpler. And the, the thing that I am most gratified by is that they kept the important thing. They kept the concept of a world where cartoon characters exist, a human world where cartoon characters and humans coexist. They kept the characters. Uh, they kept Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit, uh, Baby Herman, um, Eddie Valiant, uh, my characters, and they are, uh, as I described them in the book, they even they wear the same clothes that I described. And they could just as easily have bought my book and made it uh, Roger Raccoon. Um, I, I don't know what Jessica would have been, but probably would have stayed Jessica. But, um, but they kept all the characters and the concept. And that's the most important thing to me. And I, I, think, the, I think the book is, is wonderful. And people who have read, I'm not just, I'm not just blowing smoke up up my own nose here. 
uh, the reviews and people who read it you know, all think it's it's a great book. Uh, I think the movie is, is a great movie. Yeah, but yeah. The, the book's a book and the movie's a movie. And um, you can't really compare them because they're apples and oranges. Yeah. Uh, different mediums require different yeah, things. They, they require different mindsets. You can go into the movie and you'll laugh your, you'll laugh your butt off. You can read the book and you'll laugh your butt off. It, it's the same... It's the same thing. Um, you are the anti-PL Travers, basically. You you are very satisfied with how the film came out. And absolutely. And the penguin, I, the penguin. She was just the opposite. Yeah. And I am I am uh, I am in the minority as far as writers. I, I I've known a lot of writers who have had their movie their, their books converted into big screen movies, and I have yet to meet one that was happy about it. Uh, and I mean. I haven't met one. I met one guy whose book was converted into a science fiction movie, and uh, he wanted to visit the set. So they said, okay, you can visit the set. We're filming in London. You have to buy your own plane ticket. So he bought a plane ticket and flew to London and got to London. They said, oh, we wrapped in London. We're now filming in L.A. (laughs) So I, I, I don't know if he went to L.A. or not. But when the movie premiered, um, he, he he had to buy a ticket to go to his own movie premiere, Good right? God. And, and and sit in the audience. With, now, when my movie premiered, they they premiered it at Radio City Music Hall in New York City, specifically so I wouldn't have to go to L.A. Right? Oh, so oh. I am at Radio City Music Hall for the premiere of my movie, and I'm sitting up in the VIP section, and I, I'm about to see my my movie that, that came from my book all the way through for the first time, which I had never seen because. <clears throat> they were still working on it up to a week before the movie came out. I was going to see my credit on screen for the first time. And I had sitting on my left, <clears throat> Kathleen Turner, who was the voice of Jessica, uh, one of the most beautiful women I've ever met in my life. And on my right hand side was uh, Amy Irving, who was Stephen's wife at the time, uh, who was Jessica's singing voice, who was probably the second most beautiful. Woman. All right, everybody, we got to make Gary happy. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, life life doesn't get better than this. <laughs> yeah. And then, by God, life got better because Kathleen put her hand on my leg, Ooh. leaned over and said, and it whispered in my ear, and said, Gary, are you excited? <laughs> and I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, sorry about this. Are you, are, can you still hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry, just uh, my, my mic did a weird thing. Just so, uh, you know, basically, yeah, I'm happy with the, I'm happy with the movie. Uh, I'm I'm over the moon with the cartoons. I mean, they think, they think I mean you I mean you wrote the book so that Kathleen Turner would put her hand on your leg. I mean, I mean that's what that's what it was all leading up to. Let's be honest. Well, I gotta start writing the Great American Novel. All right, I'll see you guys. You know, I I think that Roller Coaster Rabbit. Uh, is as funny as any cartoon ever done by any studio anywhere. I think it yeah. it holds us on. I wholeheartedly agree. Yes, forties Warner Brothers I, stuff. Tex I Avery. kind of ripped off ripped off Roller Coaster Rabbit for one of my own cartoons. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I'm happy with it, uh, and I've never said a bad word about Disney. I never will. Uh, they treated me well. They, uh, I mean, geez, the the, the movie was just uh, just taken into the Smithsonian. 
I don't know what they call it, but it's like the important film place. Yeah, oh, the, um, yeah, the greatest movies of all time. Are, I know what you're um, talking about. The, the the National Film Registry or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. The National Film Registry. Widely Shrek and whatever else is in there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my name's on that movie. Uh, uh, I, uh, if I die tomorrow and, uh, you know, I'm, on my tombstone, they put, here lies Gary K. Wolf. He created Roger Rabbit and Toontown. That's enough. I'm happy with that. <laughs> Very awesome. So... I feel like anything else I could say would be anticlimactic at this point. It's a, it's a, it's a great movie, and holy shit, Gary K. Wolf is right here. You know? <laughs> well, I can tell you, I had help. I did. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. All right. So, <laughs> uh, I most of my notes are just notes of stuff that happened in the movie, which I think. I don't really didn't wasn't planning to do a go through the movie because I think everyone who's going to see it has seen it by now. I, again, I, I think anticlimactic at this point. Yeah. I think I, I think when 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 Gary's here, we we, we focus on Gary. You know, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know about you fellas, but you know, it is it is a serious comfort movie for me. I watch it at least once a year, often twice. Yeah, it is. It it, it is in many ways just one of those once in a lifetime miracle movies where. Yeah. I mean, not only where just everything clicks into place and it's firing on all cylinders and it's got an amazing script, amazing acting, amazing animation. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those rare movies that's both a technical triumph and a storytelling triumph. Yeah. yeah. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's just, it's just great in every way. It's, it's a perfect movie. If, every, it, everybody, if, a, if a perfect movie that, exists, it is this uh, one. Yeah. Everybody in that movie was at the top of their game. And everybody was out to show uh, how great a movie they could make. Everybody, the Bob Z, uh, the animators were were out to show that uh, animation was back big time. And you know, my 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 fondest example of that is the opening scene where Roger and his the movie opens basically with a short as the opening scene. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right around that kitchen and uh, Dick Williams did that entire scene himself. He animated the entire scene. I believe that. Yeah. (laughs) And what makes that scene so spectacular is that uh, the, the floor of the kitchen is black and white tile. Now there's no reason why that floor had to be black and white tile and Making a black and white tile made the animation process logarithmically harder because every uh, 25th of a second, the perspective changes on every single <laughs> tile. And it, it would have been a whole lot simpler if it had just been a black floor or a white floor. But yeah. Dick Williams wanted to drop jaws on that scene with other animators. And so he not only made it a black and white tile floor, but he put Roger's reflection in the black and white tile floor. Yeah, good God. I, I mean, that, that, was, that was not just above and beyond. That was, <laughs> that was so far above as, as to be coming around the other side and being back around the other side. Yeah, it, it yeah. really sets the standard for what a Roger Rabbit short is and continued to be throughout the rest of the shorts that they produced. What if they gave Tex Avery more money than God? Yeah, it, it's. I, I mean, that was, and we talked about this on my podcast, but like 
something's cooking through down a gauntlet because yeah. I mean, like like you were saying about the state of animation up to that point, no one had made violent cartoons in decades. Yeah. You know, parents groups wouldn't allow them on Saturday morning. You know, even on He Man, you know, He Man couldn't kill the villains; he had to throw them into a puddle of mud so they wouldn't get hurt, and they they just get embarrassed. And you know, and, and so. This movie, this that scene really had to throw back to the glory days of Tom and Jerry and Bob Clampett and Tex yeah. Avery and uh, and and just make it chock full of violence. Where like like not only not only is Roger trapped in the oven, but like you know the pickle jar falls on the on the on the cutting board and the knives all fly at him and and almost stab him and the axe goes straight for his crotch it's like it's just such it's a throwback to the cartoons of my ute yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> where 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 there was a lot of gratuitous violence uh, and, and stuff that, that nobody was doing anymore and i and think what, i think that's I, why they said it in 1946 because that was the kind of cartoons that were showing in 1946 yeah, and it looks like one of those cartoons like yeah, it does. animation and, and the, coloring and lighting and everything. And of course, the brilliant conceit of it pulling back to the live action set, which which is which is a pure Tex Avery joke, which is yeah. which is amazing that that the film is based around and uh, and it's the most crucial shot of the movie, of course, and it conveys so much information. But probably one of possibly my favorite line in the whole movie is after that extremely violent, elaborate cartoon. Baby Herman says, "What the hell was wrong with that take?" <laughs> Implying that the whole cartoon was just I cannot not in one take. <laughs> I cannot remember who played Raul J. Raul. Uh, Joel, Joel Silver, I Joel believe. Silver. The, yeah, the producer Joel Silver. Joel Silver. And that was also a little bit of an in joke because Michael Eisner hated Joel Silver. Ah. And <laughs> did not know that yeah, he was going to play that role until he saw it in the movie. So that was a little bit of an in-joke. The other in-joke on, uh, on Michael Eisner, <laughs> Michael Eisner in-jokes, but uh, uh, again, gags in the margins, little things that you don't notice uh, because they're only there for uh, six frames out of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, thousands. But when Eddie is in the restroom and the f- and there's no floor and uh, he's frozen in time for a second <laughs> If you freeze frame that and look at the restroom wall, you'll see written on the restroom wall for a good time called Snow White. Yeah. And underneath right. that is Michael Eisner's home phone number. Really? <laughs> well, presumably his home phone number at the time, not presumably after he got the ten thousand call. But you gotta, oh, you gotta realize like you gotta realize that nobody nobody ever expected that anybody was gonna see that. And it wasn't right, until right. They, it wasn't until they released it on VHS when people started playing it like a video game, going through it frame by frame, <laughs> and especially when it came out on DVD and, and Blu-ray, and people could really freeze frame it. Um, yeah. Nobody ever expected this yet. Oh, sorry. Well, well, and what you were talking about of, of the detail in this movie of the of you know the the tiled floor and Roger's reflection in it. That kind of thing is why they hired Richard Williams, of course, and, and maybe you can speak to this, Gary, but uh, it was it was really controversial at Disney at the time that they were not 
choosing to use their own in-house animation studio yeah. to do the animation for this movie. It's like, yeah, this Disney, all the time. <laughs> Disney was the only studio in town that still had one, and they weren't using them yeah, that for was, this. That was really controversial. Steven, when he came in as producer, wanted to hire all outside animators. And uh, Disney said, no, uh, we're going to use the in-house animation staff. So they compromised, and Steven said, all right, I will hire a world-class animator to oversee your animators and he will he will be like the lead animator and they they went for that so uh we started interviewing animators and of course everybody wanted chuck jones i mean Mm. uh you know i wanted chuck jones and uh we had a meeting with chuck jones the nicest man you've ever met in your life um and, and everybody wanted him but they, they decided that because the workload was going to be so hard and it was going to take so long, and at the time he was in his, I think his late 60s, early 70s, they were really afraid that the workload might kill him. And mm. so they decided, nah, we, we, we really don't want to bring him into that. And it's the only time that I've ever seen anybody in Hollywood have any empathy. <laughs> Usually it's like, kill him, <laughs> I hope he dies at his desk, and I hope he finishes his artwork before he dies. Well, well where, I, where I thought you were going with that was, oh, he probably won't deliver it on time. You know, we need to make the deadline here. No, you know, they're, no. they're always thinking about that. They're not thinking about people's health. So, so they, uh, the next guy they looked at was Ralph Bakshi. And uh, I, I always wondered... That would have been interesting. <laughs> I always wondered what Ralph Bakshi would have done with Jessica. Um, well, well, well. I mean, we know what he would have done with Jessica. Yeah, because cool world. world. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, give Steven some credit because he thought Ralph Bakshi was a thug. So uh, yeah. then, yes. then we look. <laughs> Not wrong. Dick Williams. And of course, Dick Williams had won uh, the Academy Award for the Pink Panther. Um, oh. Had done incredible stuff. Uh, if you watch a movie, live action movie called The Charge of the Light Brigade. Um, the the scene separators in the Charge of Light Brigade are dot etchings, and um, the dot etchings start to move and and are animated. Now there are hundreds of thousands of dots in each etching. Dick Williams animated each one of those etchings by doing each individual dot. I mean, it's just an incredible craftsman. And if you if you YouTube Dick Williams beer commercials, English mm-hmm. beer commercials, uh, oh. he did he did beer commercials for a cat, and the uh, the uh, cat was I've seen this uh, spokes spokes cat for this beer. Spokes a candy, but a cat basically. Yeah, and the the cat had nine lives, and every commercial the cat lost another of his nine lives, but got the beer. And if you watch those... Surprisingly long commercials. <laughs> yeah, and, and if you watch those, you will see that a lot of the bits he did there, uh, he also did in Roger Rabbit. Yeah. And um, so they brought in they brought in Dick Williams, and part of his deal was, he, he was an American, but he was living in, in England, and so they agreed to set up an English animation studio, Disney London. <clears throat> and he stocked it with uh, a number of uh, Disney animators, but also brought in a lot of people from uh, Iron Curtain countries, third world countries, uh, who couldn't get jobs in their countries because their film industries were in shambles. Uh, and so when you went to the London 
animation studio department. It was like a little United Nations. Like if you wanted, if you wanted to talk to the, to the, uh, Spanish guy, you had to talk to the Italian guy who would talk to the German guy who would talk to this French guy who would talk to the Spanish guy. And they would call <laughs> yeah. It, and, and Richard Williams's work is just mind bogglingly meticulous. Oh, yeah. Like, like that scene in Thief and the Cobbler. Where I, I forget the character's name, but the Vincent Price character Zigzag. Zigzag is playing with that deck of cards, and you see uh, all fifty-two cards, like in each in each frame, all all jumbled up together. It's like you can see like the the, the <laughs> So uh, I'll tell you one uh, one Bugs and Mickey story. Um, but uh, you know, as 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 you know, Bugs and Mickey had to be in every scene; they had to have the same amount of words of dialogue. <clears throat> well, the Disney guys were less than happy with Warner Brothers because Warner Brothers was constantly bitching and constantly saying, ah, yeah. I mean, you know the story. Right. So when Mickey and Bugs were parachuting down as a gag in the margin, they were going to have Mickey give Bugs the finger. <laughs> Ooh. Okay. Yeah, I, you, so, I, do, I don't so, think I've ever heard that yet. Somehow I knew seemed, you were well, here you go. Here that you seems go. out of character. That seems out of character, but I knew <laughs> that. So they were going to have, they were going to have Mickey give Bugs a finger. Now, this, oh, was, this, was, this was transmitted to the animator who was doing that scene, who I think was, I can't remember. Is it Andrew Station? I can't remember, but he was, he was not an English speaking guy. <laughs> and so the instruction was conveyed to him. Um, and he did the scene, but he got it wrong. And if you look at that scene and, and watch it freeze frame, you will see that instead of Mickey giving Bugs the finger, that Bugs clearly gives Mickey the finger. Hmm. <laughs> Which was not at all what we intended. But in character. <laughs> but in character. Yeah. And uh, Mick Warner's very... Hey, fuck you, Doc! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in college, I did a animation history 101 uh, class, and one of our things, twice we had to do a presentation about a movie that we thought, that wasn't mentioned in the class, that we thought was important enough to be in that class. Uh, one of them, I think everyone can figure it out, but the other one I did was Who <laughs> Framed Roger Rabbit, because <laughs> it is objectively, has a huge place in animation history. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I mean what... Um, and, and getting back to Richard Williams, uh, as I understand it, the thing that really convinced, particularly Spielberg and Zemeckis, that that he was up to the task was a series of Fanta commercials that mm. he had done for for Europe uh, that featured mm. the Disney characters, yeah. where the camera was actually moving around a lot and the characters were moving sure. with it. Whereas everyone at Disney who had worked on features like you know Pete's Dragon and Bedknobs and Broomsticks were all like, okay, you gotta lock down the camera, you can't zoom in or out, you can't pan, you can't tilt, you can't, whenever the tune's on screen, lock down the cameras so that it's easier for the animators. And Richard Williams' whole attitude was, screw easy, I want to make this look good, you know, I, you can move the camera however you want, I'll be your pencil, you know. I was there in one of the early, uh, the early production meetings when uh, Bob Z uh, was talking to uh, to Dick Williams, and um, you know, the, he said to Dick Williams, "Well, you know, what do you want from me in order to make your animation life easier?" And Dick Williams said, "Just go shoot your movie, you know, <laughs> yep. just shoot your movie, and I'll take care of it." 
you know, I don't want to lock, I don't want you locking down the camera. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the scene, the scene that the animators all point to is the scene when, uh, uh, Eddie and Dolores and Roger are in that storeroom. Mm. Roger bumps the light. Yes. The light starts swinging back and forth, back and forth. And of course, that changes the perspective infinitesimally. And uh, the shadowing is absolutely perfect. And it goes back and forth, back and forth. And it took a lot of sleepless nights to make it perfect. And now, whenever an animator does a really difficult scene, it's referred to as bumping the light. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and and I love I love just any scene where a cartoon is interacting with a physical object, like they're holding a physical object, and just thinking about the mechanics that went into shooting that scene. That's oh, the robotic arm holding the stogie. Yeah, yeah you know, well, yeah. The, again, again, props to Bob Hoskins because um, when he was handcuffed to the rabbit. And take a look at it at the movies next time you do and see he, when he's handcuffed to the rabbit, those handcuffs are on springs. And so he's controlling his arm and the rabbit's arm. And he has <laughs> to remember where his arm is in relation to what he's supposed to be doing. <clears throat> but he also has to remember where the rabbit's arm is in relation to what the <laughs> rabbit is supposed to be doing. And and it it, it, it was just a miraculous job. Uh, one other Bob Hoskins story. When he is thrown out of the Incan Paint Club by the gorilla, uh, of course he was on a wire, but he was dropped, uh, uh, intentionally dropped into those those boxes. And when that happened, he broke three ribs. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, exactly what everybody said, oh my God. So they said, there goes our shooting schedule. You know, we're going to have to wait for six months for Hoskins to heal. He came in the next day, all taped up, ready to go. <laughs> Damn! What a trooper! Yeah, what a, it's just that a commitment. Just a trooper. You know, another thing related to this that I always think of and love the outcome of. Is, I mean, that, uh, sorry, I, that's why they made him a dummy in the other scene where he's thrown from the car. Right. That's <laughs> he, yeah, he would have done that. More animated. <laughs> you know the other, yeah. yeah, that's the other thing. If you look, if you look at the scene where uh, he is in Benny the Cab and they are they are being chased by the weasels. <laughs> they're in that uh, alleyway. If you yeah. look at that scene, and yeah. then when they he go, got to freeze frame it, but yeah, and he go under the bridge. When they go under the bridge, if you freeze frame that, you'll see that Hoskins is animated. Yeah, and when they're going backwards, and now they're right in front of us. Those are the two shots where yeah, yeah. You, is you freeze frame it briefly. Eddie's a tune. Yeah, sometimes it was just easier. Yeah, that, yeah. The scene I wanted to mention was the okay. one where. Uh, Eddie is kind of threatening Roger up against a brick wall, but he's aimed too high, so they made Roger just like <laughs> against the wall to match the yes. acting that Bob had done. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. One, of my, one of my good friends, a guy who turned out to be one of my one of my best friends, a guy named Jack Muller, um, he animated um, the, the scene where Roger and Jessica are hanging from the hook. Uh, which is a scene that Disney gave me. They gave me the cell for that one, and it's it's autographed by uh, Kathleen Turner, autographed it to uh, Charlie Fleischer, voice of Roger, autographed it, Dick Williams, autographed it, um, um, Bob Zemeckis, autographed it, and Steve Spielberg, autographed it, and Bob Hoskins, autographed it. But uh, it was done by my friend uh, Jacques Muller, and 
Jacques also did the scene where uh, Doom is threatening to, to dunk Roger in the dip. And that was the first scene, one of the first scenes that was done in the movie in animation. And Jacques did that. And if you look at it, he always, he always thought that he made the rabbit too big. And if you look at it, um, and you think he's right. I think he did make the rabbit too big. But yeah, yeah. Else I'll tell you one other thing about my my autograph uh, my autograph cell. Um, on the day that Bob Hoskins died, uh, I looked at that cell because I was a little nostalgic and very sad. And uh, on that day, his autograph disappeared. It's no longer on that cell. It is gone. I, there is not a trace of it. I, I have looked. I have looked with a magnifying glass. Mm. I cannot see an indentation of the pen. His his autograph is gone. That is some time release disappearing, reappearing. Age. Well, that's what I, well, that's what everybody says. That's what everybody says. But uh, you know what? What I was what I was really concerned about was Jesus. What if at, as they die? Each one inside my cell. Oh no! <laughs> Your signature. I sent it to find some horror movie or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can tell. Like, like before I knew his name, I could pick out uh, Muller's scenes because there's a like. I like he has a specific way that he draws Roger that's just a little bit different from everybody else, which yeah. is one of the things yeah. I like about the movie because it's one of the things I like about old shorts is like sometimes you can pick out what animator did what. Like, oh, that's a Rod Scribner scene in that Bob Clampett cartoon. They've been bringing yeah. back some with some modern stuff too, I think. Yeah, Jack, Jack really had the rabbit. He, he actually uh, <clears throat> drew the cover for my novel Who Whacked Roger Rabbit oh, and, hmm. yeah, and um designed all the characters um there are uh, eight or ten new characters in that and he <laughs> he designed all of them and, and drew them um there's a there's a pig and uh um uh there's a kind of a jessica-like woman called goldie graham um and uh he did all those um a really wonderful guy he, he i am on the cover of that and uh, I did the photo shoot, and then my arm was not positioned correctly. <clears throat> so instead of having me do another photo shoot, he animated my arm. So if you look at the cover of the book, you'll see <laughs> my, I'm holding a tuned gun, and my arm holding the tuned gun is actually an animated arm. So yeah. <laughs> cool. That's cool. I've noticed, um, and I don't know if Roger Rabbit started this, but it's certainly the first thing that comes to mind. When something like, for example, like I said with Roger Rabbit, it basically re re it led to the animation renaissance, essentially. Um, when something comes out like this that's about, that's so firmly about a specific art form or medium or genre that isn't doing so well or has sort of started to die out and it, like, you know, acknowledges it and is a bit self-aware about it, it starts the resurgence of that thing. And it, I've seen it happen several times. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Well, I think uh, I think animation I think needs a kind of a kick in the butt. Maybe uh, maybe there'll be a Roger Rabbit sequel that'll do that. Uh, yeah. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Certainly, hand drawn animation will yeah. come back. Yeah. Well, yesterday, I, I, but... there, are, there are other projects I have going that I'm not allowed to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, one of them is a Roger Rabbit like uh, live action animated movie. Cool. Right. Yeah. And I am actually interested in doing uh, 
and th this is gonna not they're not gonna come out for a while because I'm actually also working on something else first. Uh, a web series that sort of has a, obviously on a much lower budget <laughs> has a Roger Rabbit style to it, um, combining live action and animation. Well, the 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 movie that I'm I'm involved with now has got a mega budget. Yeah. Uh, I would think it, all, I all, all, yeah. yeah, all A-listers and uh, um, it's going to be a Roger Rabbit style live action animated movie and I think the Roger Rabbit fans always fun. will be pretty happy with it. Uh, wow. even, even the ones that aren't as, aren't as amazing as Roger Rabbit, it's still a fun thing to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, everybody involved with it is somebody who's at the top of their game. Yeah. And uh, knows what they're doing. So, and, and I've, you know, it's not Roger Rabbit, but it's Roger Rabbit like. And it's I, Roger okay. Rabbit adjacent. I will look forward to that. It's not going to be cool. It's not going to be cool. I guarantee you. <laughs> Well, I would hope well, well, what is? What could be? There's not a basketball in it. All right. I would hope it's not Cool World since they are someone already made that movie. <laughs> yeah, Evil Tunes too. Yeah, Cool World the ripoff. Yeah, Cool World Endgame. It's gonna be it's gonna be Cool World, but it's the original version where it was a horror movie. <laughs> cool World War Z. Ah. <laughs> uh. Well, Micah, it's your show. Do you want to? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. Does anyone? Well, I, oh, that's good. Oh, one, I'm getting kind of hoarse. So, uh, yeah. Well, uh, oh, one more minor one thing more I want to point out. Everybody guess that the movie stars a horse. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the now the first of two Zemeckis movies to have Pinocchio in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just thought just thought that okay. was worth pointing. Here we go. <laughs> I'm clueless. The top of the comedy pyramid. What was the other one? Pinocchio. The, his new Pinocchio movie. He's making a live-action remake of Pinocchio that's going to no, drop on... Look this saying? up. He, Zemeckis is directing a, a live-action Pinocchio remake that's going to drop on it, Disney it, Plus later this year. He's using the animated <laughs> version's design, though. Yeah, it's. Ba it, it, I mean, I mean, it's basically going to be like a Welcome to Marwin version of Pinocchio, where Pinocchio is going to be motion capture. But credit where it's due, th they they released the first image of it, and Pinocchio does look exactly like Pinocchio from the classic short. So, I guess we'll see. We need to uh, bring once again that this is the classic of invention. Sorry, I kind of wonder where the classic where movie. Is, sorry, yeah, where is all the originality in Hollywood? Can't somebody come up? <laughs> With some story that's not better than Pinocchio, but at least newer than Pinocchio. Yes, I mean, they can, and they can pitch over and over again for ten years and keep getting no's. You know, I, I once I once pitched something to a movie studio, and they I said, no, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we can't we can't do that because it's never been done before." And I said, that, "There you go. It does happen? Yeah. Okay. And uh, that's completely oh, random. It's unprecedented. Thing. That was a." Uh, you, a lot of people were saying that about the Spider-Man ride at Universal. They were saying right. they couldn't do it because that kind of thing had never been done before. Yeah, absolutely. Like, pretty much everything that's ever been done at one point was something that had never been done. <laughs> I know, right? And yet, you know... The thing is, eh. I've, it's hard to come up with something original, to be honest. I do it all the time. You just have we'll to take original it. enough. I know that there's nothing new yeah. under the we sun, have to but come there's up stuff with an original kind of new under the moon. We have to come up with an original execution of a familiar idea instead of just 
here's a remake of the same thing again. And and once everybody stops gobbling up all of the reboots, then we'll get those new things. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe that'll be the Roger Rabbit sequel, a remake of the original. <laughs> well, the, that, the Roger Rabbit, that was my idea for an Emperor's New Groove remake, which is basically do the Emperor's New Groove, in, but live-action animation hybrid. Just, just shot for shot? No, it's about them remaking the Emperor's New Grooves <laughs> set in a Roger Rabbit-like universe. Whereas it's the, like High School Musical, the musical. Where the cartoon characters are like creative consultants on the movie, but then the star, it does sort of turn into a remake of the movie, but set in Hollywood. That's very odd. <laughs> hey, before I go, Kyle, what is that t-shirt you're wearing? Oh, it's Beret Girl from Extremely Goofy Movie, and I think this is the only thing ever produced that had her image on it. I saw a picture of uh, Max's voice actor... Jason Marsden wearing it on his Instagram the other day, and I immediately purchased it. She is very. Because, oh my God! So many. She is very. She Jessica is Jessica Remy. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Time starts in the on movie. a dime. <laughs> <laughs> if you see her in the movie, she you know does bear the resemblance, but her, uh, her personality is very different. Mm. <laughs> All right, and I'm wearing a Doctor Demento T-shirt, so. <laughs> and I'm wearing just a shirt with stripes on it. Well, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> something that got uh, tie dyed in the laundromat. I don't know what the hell. Anyway, uh, I just want to, want to give a shout out to my website. <clears throat> you know, if uh, people want to go to my website, www.garywolf.com, uh, they can read all about me and uh, uh, they'll hear this podcast. I'll put it on there with it. Oh, thank you. Uh, Yay. And Yay. Uh, they can buy my books. Uh, also, uh, my books have all just come out on uh, as audiobooks, which is a oh sweet yeah it's a great time saver for me because before that happened, if somebody wanted to hear the audio version, they would they would call me up and I would read it to them, and so it <laughs> saves me a lot of time. You know, well, yeah, I'm going to call up Gary. <laughs> I have to storyboard all day. Will you read the books to me? <laughs> I wanted to call up Gary. <laughs> Read it to me. I think that will do it. Um, All right. So, uh, is everybody ready to plug their stuff? (laughs) I think Gary just did, but yeah, I do. I have a plug if you prefer. I have a podcast. A plug. I can't do it. I have I have a podcast called Escape from Vault Disney where. Me and a rotating series of guests review movies, TV shows, and short films available on Disney+, Plus. usually chosen completely at random. March was Parks Month on Escape from Vault Disney. Uh, the most recent episode as of this, uh, this podcast release date on April 1st was an episode of uh, w- w- uh, where we covered an episode of Magic of Disney's Animal Kingdom, the Nat Geo Disney Plus reality show about the animals of Animal Kingdom. And since I postponed my podcast for a week in solidarity with the Disney Do Better walkouts, we still have one week of Parks Month left to go, even though March is over. So check out Escape from Vault Disney wherever podcasts are available, and you can follow me on Twitter at Tony Goldmark. Uh, I also have a podcast. It's called Kyle and Luke Talk About Tunes. It's exactly what it says in the tin in which me and my buddy, the great Lucy, talk about cartoons really off the cuff and not terribly well edited. So you're just kind of a fly on the wall as two grown men talk about animation for children. Uh, and, I'm, and, then, <laughs> and I'm just the other direction where I edit it way too much. So <laughs> I like the way you edit the show because it makes us all sound like geniuses. Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> 
uh, you can hear my music at tvskyle.bandcamp.com and also wherever you purchase or listen to music without paying for it. Um, and uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am tvskyle because on the internet, the apostrophe is a lie. And that's where you can see me post all of my neato new drawings. And you also created a cartoon. (laughs) Yeah, but I plugged that forever. Okay, fine. On both Hulu and HBO Max, you can watch the cartoon I made for Cartoon Network called Mighty Magiswords. And if you want to get, like, way, way deep into it, you can go to YouTube and find my old pilot, Bluebeard the Cow Pirate, that I did for Nickelodeon in the (laughs) mid-2000s. There, now I've (laughs) overplugged. And I believe Gary did his plugging. I did my plugging already. Hey, thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. And you can find me at Michael Hirsch on Twitter. I also make animated cartoons on YouTube through the channel Fireblast Studios. If you like my work and want to support me, you can pledge to the Fireblast Studios Patreon for early access to videos, behind-the-scenes footage, and more. Okay, if, 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 move along. If, if there's nothing else to see, if that's all, folks. Hmm, I like the sound of that. Yeah, that's all, folks. <laughs>